Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 8th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. GOP presidential hopefuls clash at the party's fourth debate. U.N. Chief Antonio Guterres invokes the rarely used Article 99 over Gaza. Ukraine is accused of assassinating two pro-Russia officials. Russia's Putin makes a rare foreign trip to the Middle East. The U.S. warns of alleged ethnic cleansing in Sudan. EU talks on world-leading AI regulations stall. Cambridge researchers find COVID jabs can cause an unintended immune response. The Biden administration forgives another $4.8 billion in student debt. The U.S. House censures Jamal Bowman for falsely pulling a fire alarm. And Meta launches end-to-end encryption on Facebook and Messenger. In our first story, GOP candidates minus Trump spar at the fourth GOP debate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, ABC News, the Associated Press, CNN, the Washington Examiner, and Fox News. Four Republican presidential hopefuls took to the stage at the University of Alabama on Wednesday night as the GOP held its fourth primary debate. The candidates sparred over issues including the war in Gaza, transgender medical treatment for minors, and government censorship. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley, and former New Jersey governor Chris Christie participated in the fourth GOP debate, which saw the party's smallest field. Former President Donald Trump, the overwhelming frontrunner for the Republican nomination, skipped the debate again and held a closed-door fundraiser in Florida instead. Haley came under fire early in the debate from DeSantis and Ramaswamy for her refusal to ban transgender procedures for minors, which Haley denies. Ramaswamy continually called Haley corrupt for her position on the board of Boeing and held up a handmade sign that read, Nikki equals corrupt. Christie came to Haley's defense and attacked Ramaswamy for his criticism of Haley. He also used his time to call out former President Donald Trump, who he says his fellow Republican contenders should be targeting. He said that his three competitors on the stage may be afraid of calling out Trump because they have future aspirations. The debate aired on News Nation and was moderated by former Fox News host Megyn Kelly, anchor Elizabeth Vargas, and Elena Johnson of the Washington Free Beacon. Kelly promised to ask tough but fair questions to the candidates and received overwhelmingly positive reviews from Republican viewers. While viewers were largely split over whom they believed won the debate, with more establishment figures voicing support for Christie and Haley, while mainstream conservatives favored DeSantis and pro-Trump pundits backed Ramaswamy. However, many pro-Trump personalities said the former president won the debate, despite not physically attending. Well, we have some political narratives, Melissa. Washington Post brings us Narrative A. Wednesday's GOP debate was filled with chaos and personal attacks, but Nikki Haley and Chris Christie preserved some level of decency amid the mudslinging. Meanwhile, Ramaswamy used his time to peddle far-right conspiracy theories, making misogynistic remarks about Haley and mocking Christie. While Trump is still the frontrunner in the GOP, Haley and Christie provided a welcome sight of maturity and experience. 
Both candidates were poised and presidential, and it may be Nikki Haley overtaking second place to be the non-chaotic alternative to the former president. The Gateway Pundit brings us Narrative B. Vivek Ramaswamy delivered a borderline revolutionary debate performance that rivaled the awakening Donald Trump started in 2015. While his three competitors voiced mildly different variations of mainstream conservatism, Ramaswamy attacked the key issue that no one has wanted to address and that scares the establishment more than anything. Not only did Ramaswamy attack his opponent's corruption, but he called out the failed neocon policies of the past. The GOP establishment is hissing because they know that Vivek spoke real truth to power. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from Metaculus. There's a 90% chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Melissa, I wanted to, to watch this, but I was doing this podcast last night during the debate. And then I, I actually did you know, DVR it. But by the time I came around to watching it, I had seen all the highlights on social media, I feel like. So I didn't get to you know watch it fresh. But it seemed like it was... Uh, a pretty, I don't know, almost thrilling or star-making performance from Ramaswamy. The the highlights that I saw. Uh. I really wish I saw the whole thing though, because you know, just someone's slam dunk tape doesn't show you how good they'd throw a bounce pass or something. You know, right? But, uh, yeah, but the, the dunks were impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you got that DVR, so you know, you know what you're doing the rest of the night. Yeah, I get some popcorn yeah. and watch Vivek go to town. Yeah. Yeah. Put some cinnamon on there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, just a little tidbit. <laughs> That's something I like to do. The U.N. Secretary General invokes Article 99 over the Gaza War. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, The Times of Israel, Associated Press, The New Arab, and Washington Post. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres invoked Article 99 of the U.N. Charter on Wednesday regarding the worsening humanitarian situation in Gaza, marking the first time the diplomatic tool which is used to call the Security Council's attention to any situation the chief is concerned may threaten international peace and security, has been used since 1989. Israel's U.N. Ambassador, Gilad Erdan, responded to the action by saying that the U.N. chief had reached a new moral low and should resign immediately. Meanwhile, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen said that the move was an endorsement of the murder of the elderly, the abduction of babies, and the rape of women. This came as Israel said it would open the Karim Shalom crossing between Israel and Gaza so that the amount of aid entering the Strip is increased. Israeli forces will inspect aid trucks at Karim Shalom, but will still have to enter the Strip via the Rafah crossing with Egypt. Israeli forces already inspect aid going through the Rafah crossing, and this move is only meant to expedite aid delivery via Rafah. Aid delivery throughout the Strip has become increasingly limited as thousands of Palestinian civilians continue to flee the fighting toward the Egyptian border. According to the UN, aid groups have only been able to distribute minimal supplies in and around Rafah over the last few days, mainly just flour and water. Meanwhile, images and footage circulating on social media appeared to show Israeli forces rounding up dozens of men, stripped down to their underwear, blindfolded, and with their hands behind their backs. Israeli media claimed that the images showed possible Hamas fighters who had surrendered, but the New Arab reported that one of the detained men was a correspondent for the publication's Arabic version, along with several of his relatives and other civilians in northern Beit Lahia. 
Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left over 17,000 people in the Gaza Strip dead, many of which it claims are children. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks for the update on that story, Scott. And we'll start with a pro-Israel narrative from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon last week's temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. The UN chief's rare move only seeks to impede Israel's right to defend itself. Middle East Eye brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. Guterres is right to exert more pressure to end the war. Ukraine reportedly assassinates two pro-Russia officials. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Le Monde, The Kyiv Post, and The New York Times. A former Ukrainian lawmaker who fled to Russia shortly before Moscow's invasion was found dead on the outskirts of the Russian capital on Wednesday. Ilya Kiva, 46, was found with a gunshot wound to the head, Russia's investigative committee said. A day before Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Kiva said his home country had been soaked by Nazism and needed liberating by Moscow. Last month, during proceedings that were held in absentia, a Ukrainian court sentenced him to 14 years in prison for charges including treason and incitement to violence. Since Wednesday's attack, a number of publications, including the BBC and several Ukrainian outlets, have, citing law enforcement and other sources, confirmed that the Security Service of Ukraine, also known as the SBU, was responsible. Andriy Yusov, a spokesman for Ukraine's military intelligence, told Ukrainian TV, quote, Yes, we can confirm Kiva is no more. This fate will befall other traitors of Ukraine and puppets of Russian President Putin's regime. Meanwhile, a second pro-Russia official was also reported killed on Wednesday, this time in the Russian-held Luhansk region. Oleg Popov, a deputy in the region's pro-Russian parliament, died in a car bombing in Luhansk city center. Russia's investigative committee said he was killed after the detonation of an unidentified device in a car. A number of Ukrainian outlets further confirm that the SBU was also responsible for the second attack. A military source who confirmed the SBU's involvement in the Kyiv post said the killing was justified because Popov was a quite legitimate target. The source said before becoming a deputy, he managed many Russian volunteer battalions, led illegal armed formations, and killed Ukrainians. Ukraine is suspected of being behind a number of political assassinations in recent months, including Daria Dugina, the daughter of a key ally to Putin, as well as a number of pro-Russia politicians in Russian-held regions of Ukraine. However, Ukraine did not publicly claim responsibility for those attacks, leaving culpability somewhat ambiguous. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative from Kyiv Post. 
Ilya Kiva was an infamous traitor to Ukraine, not only defecting to Russia, but even calling for the invasion. Such treason cannot be accepted in wartime, and all who collaborate with Russia will meet the same fate. Here's the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. This brazen assassination conducted by Ukrainian intelligence was nothing short of state-sponsored terrorism. These types of actions need to be condemned by the international community. Action has to be taken to prevent these types of attacks from happening again. And an establishment-critical narrative comes from West Point's Lieber Institute. Under the standards of international law on war, committing assassinations is widely considered a war crime. Ukraine's role in a number of suspected assassinations is clearly beyond the scope of the law and should be condemned. And we have another nerd narrative here from Metaculus. This one says there's a 1% chance that there will be a deadly clash between the U.S. and Russian armed forces before 2024. Putin visits the UAE and Saudi Arabia on a rare foreign trip. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Saudi Gazette, Reuters, Daily Sabah, France 24, and Al Jazeera. Russian President Vladimir Putin met the leaders of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia during a rare one-day tour to the Middle East on Wednesday to discuss energy cooperation, trade, and the Hamas-Israel war. On his first stop, Putin met with UAE's President Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nayyan in Abu Dhabi, who welcomed the Russian leader as his dear friend. During their talks, Putin said that Abu Dhabi's position allowed bilateral ties to reach an unprecedentedly high level saying the Arab Emirate was Russia's main trading partner in the Arab world. Putin pointed to Moscow and Abu Dhabi's cooperation with OPEC+, a coalition of oil-producing nations whose members supply more than 40% of the world's oil, adding that the talks also addressed the Israel-Hamas war and the Ukraine conflict. Putin last visited the region in July 2022, meeting Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. The Russian president then traveled to Saudi Arabia's capital, Riyadh, to meet Saudi Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman, who pointed to the successful cooperation in the areas of energy, trade, and investment. Putin remarked that nothing can prevent the development of our friendly relations. During their meeting, the leaders of the world's two largest oil exporting countries discussed cooperation within the OPEC Plus framework to strengthen the stability of global oil markets, according to a joint statement. The conflicts in Gaza, Ukraine, Yemen, Iran's nuclear program, and bolstering bilateral defense ties were also discussed. The two-stop trip was a rare foreign visit by the Russian president who was wanted for alleged war crimes in Ukraine by the International Criminal Court. As the UAE and Saudi Arabia have not ratified the ICC's Rome Statute, they are not bound to arrest the Russian head of state, who is set to meet Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi in Moscow on Thursday. Thank you, Scott. We'll start the round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from the New York Times. With his trip, Putin hoped to show that Russia remains a global player, despite the international community's attempts to isolate Moscow over its Ukraine invasion. With regional anti-Americanism at an all-time high in light of the Israel-Hamas war, Putin is stepping up his efforts to bolster Russia's regional clout. Ultimately, however, the war sparked by Hamas reveals that the U.S. remains the region's dominant military and political player, while Russia's actual influence is marginal. Added to this are the recent differences between Moscow and Riyadh over the OPEC plus oil production cuts. 
Putin's charm offensive is unlikely to yield any significant results. An Indian narrative brings us the establishment critical narrative. Putin's warm and respectful welcome in Saudi Arabia and the UAE highlighted yet again that the region is no longer willing to bow to the West's geopolitical interests and double standards. The fact that both Arab states are also key U.S. partners underlines the growing influence of Moscow in the region, which recently agreed with Saudi Arabia to cut oil production to stabilize the crude market. Also, Russia enjoys regional recognition thanks to its balanced foreign policy stance and could play a mediating role in the Hamas-Ukraine conflict. Putin's goal was to assert himself on the world stage, and his trip proved that he has little to lose and much to gain. And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 5% chance that the International Criminal Court will bring charges against Benjamin Netanyahu before 2026. You know, I think there ought to be more charm offensives in general. It'd be nice. (laughs) Yeah, it would be nice. Yeah, more charm. I I think countries' uh, military-industrial complexes are just afraid of rejection. You know, you put yourself out there with a charm offensive and you get rejected. That's hard to take. If That's you just true. try to That's explode true. someone. Out. Right, right. Just ex- explode them into a date with you. <laughs> right. That's, right. <laughs> That's the plan. The U.S. claims that warring factions in Sudan committed war crimes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the U.S. Department of State, PBS NewsHour, and France 24. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced on Wednesday that the U.S. has officially concluded that the warring parties in Sudan have committed war crimes, as he urged the Sudanese Armed Forces, SAF, and Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, RSF, to stop the violence that erupted in April. According to Blinken's statement, the U.S. also found that the RSF and their affiliated militias were responsible for crimes against humanity and the ethnic cleansing of Masalit civilians, a non-Arab group in West Darfur, while it cautioned that the SAF's strikes on RSF-controlled residential areas could be in breach of international law. This follows a State Department investigation that included extensive reports of sexual violence against women and girls in the country at the hands of the RSF. Although the declaration doesn't include penalties on the leaders or members of either side, the U.S. has already imposed numerous sanctions and hasn't ruled out further measures. Tensions between the military under the direction of General Abdel Fattah al-Buran and the paramilitary rapid support force under the command of Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo turned into open combat in April over a failed plan to merge forces and transition from military rule to civilian democracy. As of October, Sudan's civil war is estimated by the UN to have killed up to 9,000 people. However, human rights activists and medical associations estimate that the true number of casualties is much higher. Thanks, Melissa, for those uh, disturbing facts. The pro-establishment narrative comes from the Associated Press. There has to be an end to the civil conflict in Sudan. Secretary Blinken is right about that. The crimes committed against the civilian population have gone unchecked for too long and there is a great chance that the fighting will expand into nearby nations. Should that occur, it would be a surefire way to unleash a massive human tragedy that would result in a protracted war and a human catastrophe for millions of people. And here's an establishment critical narrative from Amnesty International. While Washington is right to call out the atrocities being committed in Sudan, it has so far failed to acknowledge the Western meddling that undoubtedly played a role in the conflict. 
Western governments so kindly offering humanitarian aid today and condemning the violence are the same ones who toyed with Sudan for decades, solely to steal its resources and combat China's rise in the region. The EU's talks on the AI Act stall and are set to resume today. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, Tech Monitor, Reuters, Politico, Bloomberg, and Time Magazine. The three-way debate between the 27 EU member states, the European Commission, and the EU Parliament on world-leading comprehensive artificial intelligence regulations was paused on Thursday after nearly 24 hours of discussions to try to sign off on a deal to finalize the so-called AI Act. Negotiations will resume on Friday morning as policymakers are attempting to pass the legislation before elections in June. Bloomberg News reported, citing people familiar with the matter, that progress has been made, but it remains unclear whether a draft will be agreed on. Provisional terms on foundation models for regulating generative AI systems such as ChatGPT were reportedly stuck on Thursday. With Reuters suggesting that the European Commission would focus on high-risk models while requiring detailed summaries of the content used to train general-purpose AIs. Yet, according to Politico, talks that started on Wednesday have stalled over differences on what types of AI should be banned under the pioneering rulebook and whether national security should be exempted from its scope. If a final text emerges this week, it's expected to be voted on later this month in the EU Parliament. Though lawmakers had already approved a draft version in June, the legislation wouldn't pass as France, Germany, and Italy opposed its tight regulations on foundation models. While Brussels has adopted a risk-based approach to regulating AI, the U.S. has taken an incentive-based approach to the emerging technology in a bid to retain developers in the country. Those were the facts. Here are the narrative spins with Narrative A from Euronews. The EU has a moral duty to reach an agreement on the AI Act as soon as possible to protect the common good and address the risks inherent to the absurd proposal to refrain from regulating foundation models. Otherwise, one of the biggest scandals in its history will have taken place, as lobbyists would have co-opted institutions to promote non-European interests. Narrative B comes from The Hill. Despite its downside, self-regulation remains the best policy course to deal with AI, even compared to well-intentioned government regulation. The very complex nature of the controversial technology and its dynamic pace would make it challenging and costly to enforce government-imposed guidelines. Additionally, countries that over-regulate may lag behind in the global AI race. And the nerds have another say. This one says there's a 75% chance that the EU AI Act will implement regulations on foundation models. Researchers find that mRNA vaccines can produce unintended immune response. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph. Genetic engineering and biotechnology news. And science. Researchers at the University of Cambridge's Medical Research Council Toxicology Unit have discovered that some mRNA jabs for COVID can cause an unintended immune response that leads to the production of useless unrelated proteins. So far, it appears this glitch doesn't cause any adverse effects, but the response was present in a little more than one in four patients who received the shot. The mRNA vaccines work because Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman of the University of Pennsylvania discovered that replacing uridine on one of the mRNA strands with pseudoridine allows it to survive long enough to make the necessary protein. 
In Cambridge University's research, however, they discovered the form of pseudoridine and mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna can lead to an increase in misreadings of mRNA by ribosomes compared to readings of natural mRNAs. It is possible that the vaccines could even get a boost from the body's broader immune response to the misreadings. The council stressed that this research doesn't indicate that COVID vaccines are unsafe. Thanks, Melissa. We have some narrative spins on this, starting with Narrative A from BBC News. It's great that even as mRNA vaccines have proven to be highly effective in saving millions of lives, scientists are continuing to study them. While the COVID vaccines aren't producing any ill effects from these unwanted proteins, future vaccines for other viruses could produce harmful proteins. These types of studies will make sure that doesn't happen. Here's Narrative B from Indo, New York. It can't be stressed enough that there's no evidence of ill effects so far. Research will continue, and it's great that vaccine makers will be working to avoid this issue in future vaccines. But like all jabs, the science is still unfolding, and we'll see what impact there might be on the COVID vaccine. A longer period of record will eventually tell the full story. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that the WHO will announce that the COVID-19 pandemic has ended by April of 2025. Oh no, I just got mine yesterday. <laughs> oh well. I do, I do, Melissa, I will say I have kind of like full body swelling today, right. but I truly do have like neck and face, as big as my neck and face normally are, now they're even a little bit bigger. So oh, there no. you go. Oh, yeah, no. it's bad. It's just yeah, it's what bad. you wanted. We got to call air traffic control. You know, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> the Biden administration forgives $4.8 billion in student debt for 80,000 borrowers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, New York Daily News, Fox News, CBS News, CNBC, and the United States Department of Education. On Wednesday, the Biden administration announced another round of student loan forgiveness, totaling $4.8 billion for 80,300 borrowers. The announcement brings the total loan forgiveness by the Biden administration to $132 billion for 3.6 million borrowers. The new debt relief will be applied because of amendments made to the income-driven repayment plans and will also forgive a significant amount for borrowers who have signed up for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. In response to the new tranche of relief, President Biden said, From day one of my administration, I vowed to improve the student loan system so that higher education provides Americans with opportunity and prosperity, not unmanageable burdens of student loan debt. The U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, said, Before President Biden took office, it was virtually impossible for eligible borrowers to access the student debt relief they rightfully earned. The data released today once again makes clear that the Biden-Harris administration's relentless efforts to fix the broken student loan system are paying off in a big way. The latest announcement comes five months after the Biden administration's plan for wide-sweeping debt relief was derailed by the U.S. Supreme Court, Since that time, the administration has announced multiple rounds of relief. While the initial effort was shot down by the Supreme Court, the administration has vowed to continue to explore routes to broad student loan debt forgiveness for Americans. Thanks for those facts, and here's the Democratic narrative from NBC. While it is unfortunate that the Supreme Court has decided to stand in the way of much-needed debt relief for Americans, 
the Biden administration has many more tools in the box to help borrowers. Democrats have banded together to implore the president to use his executive authority to reduce the outstanding debt and reduce the cost of higher education so that future generations of students are not crippled with this undue and unjust burden. And the Republican narrative comes from the Hill. The Supreme Court was clear in the authorities provided to the president when it comes to student loan debt relief. These announcements of new debt relief rollouts are shameful and an intentional plan by the administration to circumvent the decision of the high court. While trying to appease his far-left followers, the president has alienated and disenfranchised the Americans who took responsibility and paid off their debts with no help from a socialist government, a move that will surely be reflected in the polls. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance the U.S. student loan bubble will pop by January 2037. I'll tell you what, I worked at a college uh, for a while, and the, the college was lending out as much aid as possible to every kid, hmm. as much as they could, not just for their, um, not just for their like tuition and stuff, but it was like, is giving them as much money as they could to like live and do whatever on. And I'm telling you, the day those checks came in, it was party time, party mm. time, like a lot of this debt is not just books and and tuition, let me tell you, and dorm yeah. stuff. I'm telling you, I mean, I, I had a staff of students and they were talking about like, I went to the financial aid office to to fill out my forms. They're like, hey, do you need more money? And they're like, well, sure. You know, like, I'll just, you offer an 18 year old more money and they're going to just go to a bar. Like, sure, they're going to take the money and deal yeah. with it later. It's, it's crazy. I'm right. telling you, these they, they were pushing on the kids to get as much money as they could. Huh. Yeah, that that that's probably why we are where we are. That kind of thing. I can tell you, it was crazy. Like everyone just went crazy with this money they have, and why shouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, the lottery. In our next story, the U.S. House censures Representative Jamal Bowman for a false fire alarm. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, NBC, BBC, CNN, and the Wall Street Journal. On Thursday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to censure Representative Jamal Bowman, Democrat of New York, for activating the fire alarm at the Cannon House office building during a chamber vote to fund the government in September. Three Democrats, Representatives Chris Pappas of New Hampshire, Johanna Hayes of Connecticut, and Marie Glusenkamp-Perez of Washington, voted with the Republicans to provide a final tally of 214 to 191 with four Democrats and one Republican voting present. In October, Bowman faced charges brought by Washington, D.C. prosecutors in which he pleaded guilty to the misdemeanor and was levied a $1,000 fine. While he was seen on camera pulling the fire alarm, he argued that it was by accident when trying to exit a door that was locked but is usually open during votes. Representative Lisa McLean, Republican of Michigan, who brought the motion to censure to the House floor, stated that nobody is above the law, congressmen included. The vote to censure Representative Bowman is just one of many recent votes to censure, impeach, or expel members of the U.S. government. The House recently voted to expel former Representative George Santos of New York and censure Representative Rashida Tlaib for alleged anti-Semitic comments. Thanks, Melissa. The Guardian brings us the Democratic narrative. The extreme right MAGA wing of the Republican Party has been wheeling and dealing censures as though they were a weapon. If only they were willing to work this hard to meet the economic, 
health care, and safety needs of the American people. Everyone is at risk of a House Republican censure, which just renders the measure useless. Now that this charade is over, Bowman and his party can get back to work and focus on what really matters. The Republican narrative comes from The Federalist. Not only did Jamal Bowman commit a crime by pulling the fire alarm, but he did so to help his party to lay a House vote. The man who called January 6 demonstrators terrorists and white supremacists single-handedly forced an entire legislative building to evacuate. So while his political opponents rot in prison, Representative Bowman gets treated with kid gloves after endangering the same hallowed halls he claims to protect. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative predicting a 25% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the House of Representatives. I don't know if he... I'm not rendering any judgment on this fire alarm pulling, but I can tell you, and this probably says more about what's wrong with me, whenever I'm like walking down a hallway and there's a fire alarm, I always am like, I'm going to steer clear of that thing. I don't want to trip and my hand will fall on it and then it's a whole <laughs> thing. You know, that's, I really do have like a visceral reaction. Very minor. I'm not trying to overstate this, but it's always like, I'm aware of that fire alarm, steer clear of it. You know, it looks something weird. I'm just going to trip okay. and fall into it. And it's going to go off. I mean, I think that says you were probably a very... um good elementary school student who like when the fire team came in and gave you lessons about safety they were like you would never you know some big strong dude was like don't ever pull this unless it's a real emergency I, um, I'm, so I'm gonna they tell you, scared the life into you i'm gonna tell you one of the great thrills of my life at east main street school the firemen were giving some kind of presentation in the auditorium and i remember I was looking around and there was a fireman. There was like firemen like lined up down the side of the auditorium, which in our school was just the gym, which was just a room. It wasn't yeah. even a real gym. It wasn't even a real gym. That was our fake auditorium. It was just oh. a room. That was our <laughs> fake gym. That was our fake auditorium. So it was gotcha. really nice. The multi-purpose yeah, room. Not yeah. exactly Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, I remember I, I locked, this is 100% true. I don't think I've ever told anyone this. Like, I remember I was looking, I was scanning the room and I happened to like meet eyes with one of the firemen. And okay. then I was like, all right, that's cool. And then later they had to call someone up to get dressed up in the fire suit. And that guy called me and I got to go up in the front and got dressed up in all the real fireman's clothes. Yes. Yeah. It was Was awesome. that like the best Best day of a young man's life. Kind of. I was in, I believe I was in, it was either third, fourth or fifth grade. Cause that was the only, you know, this, as I've described, the school wasn't exactly glamorous or large, but, um, but it was, so it was one of those grades. I don't remember which one, but I remember like it was me looking around and I, I did lock eyes with the guy. And then he just, when it was like, okay, who's going to come put this on? He just pointed at me and pulled me up. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> and it was like, this is cool. You know, like, and I got, and it nice. was the real, it wasn't like the kitty plastic thing. Like they dressed me up in the real oh, yeah. fireman stuff. It was cool. Meta launches end-to-end -end encryption for Facebook and Messenger. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Meta's newsroom, Forbes, The Guardian, Verge, and The Hacker News. Meta Platforms has begun rolling out default end-to-end -end encryption on Messenger and Facebook, a service the tech giant claimed was safer, more secure, and private. According to Lordana Krizan, the head of Messenger at Meta, the social media company can no longer access users' calls and chats except when someone chooses to report a message to Meta. The feature, which is built on Signal's protocol as well as Meta's own Labyrinth protocol, will reportedly take months to cover Facebook's over a billion users. 
Group chat encryption remains an opt-in feature, while Instagram messages remain unencrypted by default. However, Meta has said this will change shortly after end-to-end encryption is rolled out for Messenger. Meta claims its end-to-end encryption service would protect messages against non-members and allow users to store their messages server-side as well as maintain strong privacy. Thanks, Scott, and here's Narrative A from Forbes. Though Meta hasn't admitted that Facebook and its messenger are unsecured, more than a billion users of its platform were vulnerable to abuse from all sides, from criminals and overbearing governments. Users must always choose apps and platforms that prioritize security and privacy. Meta has finally ticked that important box. Narrative B from The Guardian. Meta must surely see the danger in trading off user safety for the larger idea of privacy. The company's platforms have in the past helped track and corner sexual abusers only because of a lack of encryption. Now that Meta has crossed to the dark side, the world's law enforcement agencies will be left in the lurch on this front. And the nerds have the final say from Metaculus. This one says there's a 3% chance that Meta platforms sell Instagram or WhatsApp before 2025. Surprised it took them so long. Um, so I think they kind of missed the boat, first of all. Right. But, all, but I think the grease, as the much as greased. yeah, as much as they should be offering that, I think it would be hard to get your you know secret naughty friends text thread on Messenger at this point and have everyone mm. feel good about it at this at this point. You know, not that I have one, but uh, <laughs> but it's not going to be on just Messenger. for for example. Yeah. You know, good, right, right. Just pulling for this out of thin air. Yes, yeah. yes, hypothetically speaking, of right. course. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 8th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. 